Uh, I don't know about you guys, but my family and I love the Olympics. Every two years, we are tuning in to the summer or the winter games, and we just drink it in. I mean, uh, we have been watching it almost continually since it started uh, last week. We can't decide which events are our favorites. They seem so many seem to be fun to watch. We love the athleticism. We love the competition. And here I am. Uh, we love we love to see the competition. We love how uh, the various events are unique in and of themselves. Personally, I love during the Winter Games. I love the biathlon, cross country skiing, and shooting of guns. I just it's a perfect combination. And so. Uh, we love the winter games, we love the summer games, we love the races, we love the track and field, we love all of it, and we watch it continually. We look forward to that two weeks every two years. But there is something that is essential for every event, or nearly every event. You must finish your routine, or you must finish your race, or you have no chance at the podium. If you don't finish your race or finish your routine, you can forget about a gold, silver, or bronze medal. You can't get the hardware unless you finish your race. And as we've already seen a number of times in these competitions, those who are failing to finish their routine, their race, they are being disqualified, they are not allowed to place, they are not allowed their scores to be tallied, and therefore they cannot win any medals. In the Christian life, Oftentimes throughout the New Testament, you see the Christian life likened to a race. And the difference between the race of the Christian life and the races that you see in the summer games or the winter games is in the Christian life, if you fail to finish, it doesn't mean you wiped out a chance of uh, first, second, or third place at a gold or silver or bronze medal. It means you wiped out your chance at heaven. Failing to finish the race in the Christian life is not a matter of being less fruitful. It's a matter of not going to heaven. If you bail on Christ, if you turn your back on Him and reject Him, you may have started well, but your end has proven that you are not a believer and you have missed out on heaven. A lot of us, however, I think, our theology is strong, but we tend to think about Salvation primarily in present and past tenses. I was saved in 1998, in the winter of 1998-99. I was saved, or I am being saved by the power of the Holy Spirit. I was saved when I was a young child, whatever it might be. Or I am saved right now. I know that I am saved. How many of us, though, think of salvation in future terms? The Bible actually speaks very often about salvation in the future. Something that theologians have called a future salvation or a final salvation. Just a few texts for you. Jesus himself said that it is only the one who endures till the end who will be saved. That's Matthew twenty-four, thirteen. The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. She will be saved. You bail in the middle of your race... You won't be saved. Romans 5.10 For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are re- reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. 
Romans 13:11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believe. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What salvation? Future salvation. Final salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. What salvation? Final salvation. Future salvation. Not wrath. That's not what God has destined you for, but salvation. 1 Peter makes this distinction between present salvation and final salvation rather clear. 1 Peter 1.3-5 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for what? For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Your past salvation, your present salvation will be consummated in a future and final salvation. 1 Peter 1.9 Though you have not seen him, referring to Jesus, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice in a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. A future salvation. And Jesus himself says something that will be emphasized in the text that we're going to look at today. It is the one who endures till the end. He or she shall be saved. You throw it all away in the middle of it, you will not be saved. And we need to hear this strong word. The question that many of us fail to ask, however, when we read texts like this, and we hear the warning that we're going to hear in uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 14 today, the question that we fail to ask, knowing that Christ has given us a secure salvation. John chapter 10 verses 27 through 30 tell us that Christ holds on to us. He will not let us go. Romans 8 39 reemphasizes that. Christ, the love of God, will not let us go. The question we fail to ask when we bump up against texts that I just read and we put them alongside of texts that clearly speak of the, the security of our salvation The question we fail to ask that we must ask that the author of Hebrews is asking is how does God keep us secure in the faith? How does he do it? It has to happen in real time. The security of your salvation doesn't happen in the abstract. It has to happen in real time. How does God keep our salvation secure? He does it by keeping us believing. You are saved by faith. You are presently saved by faith and you will receive final salvation by faith, which means you must keep believing. So the God who gave you a secure salvation must see to it that you keep believing. Only the one who perseveres in faith till the end will be saved. It's clear in what Jesus says. It's going to be clear in what we see today in this text. What then is the means by which God keeps us believing? As we'll see in Hebrews chapter 12 verses, or chapter 3 verse 12 through 14, it is the local church that God has established 
as one of the primary means to keep you believing. One of the primary ways, one of the primary means that God keeps you from bailing on Jesus is by giving you the local church so that you will consistently and constantly receive exhortation to not disbelieve in Jesus, but to continue to believe in Him. It is the local church God uses to keep us in the faith. It is one of the primary means. So let's look at that text that we're talking about today. Let's look at the text. It's chapter 3, verses 12, uh, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 in Hebrews. It says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's our text for today. And I want you to notice four things from this text. Four essential elements in this text. First is the warning. You see this on your outline. If you have the uh, outline in your paper bulletin or if you're looking at it on your app, you have first in verse 12 the warning. In verse 13a you have the instruction. In verse 13b you have the goal. In verse 14 you have the reason. And we'll unpack each of these. The warning is in verse 12. It says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you in in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. I want you to first notice this word that says, Take care. Take care. This word in the New Testament basically means to look, to look out for, to pay attention. In one place, place it means open your eyes. In other words, there's no passivity here. There's no room for being preoccupied with your own life. There's no room for shyness to where you are so consumed with your own self and your own life that you are no longer concerned about the people in your midst, the brothers and sisters in your midst, in their present spiritual condition. He tells us to look out for, to take care, to take action to be aware of your brothers and sisters in Christ in their present spiritual condition. No room for passivity. No room for preoccupation with your own life. We must be aware of our brothers and sisters around us, particularly with their present spiritual life. We need regular exhortations, as the text says, from one another. That's why the author says, Today, as he'll say in a little bit. But I also want us to notice, notice another thing. He is referring, he's addressing, uh, he's addressing and he's referring to believers. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, uh, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He is referring to and addressing believers. And that should be very important for us to understand. Some commentators take this to mean he's referring to his Jewish brethren. I don't think the context of Hebrews allows that. I think he's clearly referring to 
believers. He is referring to them as brothers. And he is warning against apostasy. He says, make sure that there's no one with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What does it mean to fall away from the living God? He's not talking about a lack of fruitfulness in someone's life. He's not talking about a momentary lapse when we struggle with sin or we struggle with unbelief and we fight the fight of faith and we fall and we trip and we stumble. He's not talking about that. He's talking about a decided turning away from Jesus where you have determined that life and sin in this world is more valuable than Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed for you. That is apostasy. And the warning is to GBF that there be no one among us who has an evil, unbelieving heart leading them to fall away from the living God. Leading them to apostasy. Leading them to turn their backs on Jesus once and for all. So the warning is to GBF to make sure that there's no one in the young adult group that there's no one in north of 40, there's no one in the women's ministry, there's no one in the young professionals ministry, no one in the college ministry, no one in the young uh, couples with kids ministry that has an evil, unbelieving heart leading them to fall away from the living God. That's the warning. Taken at face value. The question though you might have, you might be scratching your head right now saying, wait a second, Derek, you can't talk to believers like that. You can't say that to a believer. A believer has a secure salvation. How dare you speak that way to a believer? I didn't say it. The author of Hebrews has said it to us. As we've already pointed out, one of the ways that God keeps a believer believing is by placing them within the local church so that they will consistently receive exhortation and be, be drawn away from the enticements of sin so that they might persevere in the faith. God keeps the salvation of the sinner secure by keeping them believing, and He does that through the exhortation of the church. God keeps the believer secure by keeping them believing. So what I want us to both, what I want us to hear today is that one of the chief ways that God is keeping the person sitting next to you from bailing on Jesus is your relationship to them. Let me repeat that. One of the chief ways God is keeping the person sitting next to you from bailing on Christ is their relationship with you. Your relationships in the local church are one of the primary ways that God keeps you believing. These gospel-centered relationships are one of the means that God keeps your salvation secure. Now you might be thinking, again, as you hear these things, maybe for the first time, you might be thinking, wait, doesn't this imply that a genuine Christian can lose their salvation? That's how some take this text. Some scholars had take this text to, to mean that it, you must be saying, because you're re referencing brothers, 
And you're giving the, the, the implication that someone can, who's a brother can fall away from the faith and fall away from Christ. They can have an evil, unbelieving heart. What you're saying, what the author is saying is that you can lose your salvation. That's not at all what this text is teaching. A genuine believer cannot lose their salvation. And that's not even what this author would imply throughout the book of Hebrews. For example, in chapter 6, verse 9, he's given a very serious warning to the listeners, the, the audience, to his, uh, the church that he's writing to. A very serious warning. And he follows it up by saying this, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Later in chapter 10, verse 39, he says this. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith to preserve their souls. In other words, he is confident that the people to whom he is speaking will heed his warnings and continue to persevere in the faith. He is not implying that a person can lose their salvation. By using the expression brothers, as in brothers or si- brothers and sisters, the author of Hebrews is simply speaking from his limited, finite perspective. He is writing to professing believers. But he, like you and me, is unable to see inside the heart of individual believers. We can't see inside the heart of each person to see whether or not they are truly regenerate. To call someone my brother in Christ who has given me good reason to believe that they are a Christian is to speak from a confidence, not an absolute certainty that they are a genuine believer. Let me say that again. When I call someone my brother or sister in Christ, when they've given me good reason to believe that, I am speaking from a confidence, not an absolute certainty that they are a regenerate believer. Why? Because I can't see inside of you to see your heart. I can't see the Holy Spirit inside of you. That's what we do during the membership process. When you come to apply for membership and you come and give your testimony of salvation and you tell us what the gospel is and we hear your testimony and we see the fruit in your life and we hear the, uh, your articulation of the gospel, then we, together as an elder team, and myself included, say we are confident that this person is a genuine believer and we allow you into membership at the local church level at GBF. That's what we do. When we hear a credible profession of faith, when we see what appears to be fruit, you're able to articulate the gospel, then we welcome you as a brother or sister in Christ. What we do not have is a spiritual x-ray machine to see the Holy Spirit. What we can go on is not certainty, but great confidence that you are, in fact, a believer. And we welcome you into the fellowship. That's what is assumed in this passage. What's assumed in this passage is that God has not given us the ability to know with certainty who is and who isn't a Christian. When a person makes a credible profession of faith and there's good reason to believe they are a Christian, we're called to accept them as our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
That's what we do as an elder team. That's what you do as a believer. That's what you're called to do. Not called to be suspicious about what appear to be genuine salvations. You accept your brother and you accept your sister. However, according to this passage, we still continue to exhort and admonish our fellow brothers and sisters so that there will never be found an evil, unbelieving heart among us. Let me just give you, I'll kind of apply this to myself to make this understandable, hopefully. Because I know this is complex as we try to think the, uh, God's thoughts after Him, as we try to be faithful to one text as it, as it fits with other texts. How does this look? Well, let's say that you've gone through the membership process and you've met with Pastor Tim and you've met with the elders and we've heard your testimony and I've heard your testimony and the, and the elders have agreed that you give an, a, the, a, a credible profession of faith and you understand the gospel and it appears to be fruit in your life and we accept you as our brother and sister in Christ. And you're welcomed in. What's my responsibility still? We've just said, we believe you're a believer. You are my brother and sister in Christ. And now I will continue to exhort you so that in you is never found an evil, unbelieving heart. Why can the author of Hebrews say that? Because I can't see inside of you. All I can do is be God's means to keep you believing. And that means is to exhort you, as the text says. Exhort one another today as long as it's called today. So the implicit warning in this text is to watch out for ourselves, right? But the explicit command in this text, as we'll see in a moment, is to watch out for our brothers and sisters in Christ to regularly exhort them to be on guard, to be at watch for them so that they will never be found with an evil, unbelieving heart. That is what this text is calling us to. Remember that famous question in Genesis chapter 4? What did Cain sarcastically ask God? Am I my brother's keeper? Guess what this text says to Cain? Yes, you are your brother's keeper. You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper at GBF. You are responsible to exhort one another day to day, as long as it's called a day, so that none of us will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That is your responsibility, to love your brother and sister so much that you do not want to see them fall away from the faith. So that leads us to our instruction. Verse 13a says this, But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Implied here that this is not merely happening happening when you see someone drifting away from the faith. That's kind of when we start kicking it in. We're like, oh, boy, I need to go after this person. They're starting to drift. The point is, is that this is happening regularly, even when things are good, so that the exhortations are regularly coming to me from you and they're coming from me to you it's not just something i do on saturdays or fridays or once a month or whatever it's today as long as it's called today why well as we'll see because sin is deceitful it's constantly encroaching on us satan is looking all over the place for people to devour and so on 
So how do we actively take care of our brothers and sisters so that there will be found in no one who professes the name of Christ here at GBF with an evil, unbelieving heart? The text here says, if you're reading the ESV, it says, exhort one another. If you're using the NASB, the New American Standard, it would say encourage one another. The word is actually parakaleo. And you might, that might sound familiar. It's because the Holy Spirit is called our paraclete in the Gospel of John. The, the, the Holy Spirit is our encourager. He's our exhorter. He's our comforter. And that's what is being referred to here. The distinction actually between the New American Standard and the ESV at this point is actually helpful because there are shades of meaning in both categories of exhortation and encouragement that are found throughout the New Testament. He's using this word, and there are shades of both encouragement and exhortation as this word is used throughout the New Testament. Most of us, I suspect, however, think of encouragement and exhortation on opposite ends of the lexical spectrum, right? How can they even be related? Well, let's just think about the English words encourage and exhortation for a moment. Your common dictionary would define encourage like this. To inspire with courage, spirit, or hope, to spur on, to give help to, give support, and advice to someone so that they will continue to do something. Okay? So that is the basic definition of encouragement, or to encourage. The very structure of the word actually explains to us what this word means. It means to endow with courage, to give someone courage. They're presently not moving ahead. They're presently not fulfilling what they need to do or continuing what they need to do because they lack some kind of courage. So you need to encourage them. But we tend to think of encouragement as being primarily about cheering someone up, right? I see the grace of God in your life or I think of the many ways that God has shown his goodness to you or you are very fruitful in ministry or think of how good the gospel is and it's a cheering up kind of ministry. We all want to be encouragers, and that's what this is. You're encouraging someone up. You're cheering them up. Why? So that they might continue and move ahead in the faith and not become stagnant. Exhortation, however, we kind of feel is different and maybe not even related to encouragement. To exhort someone, this is how the uh, common di dictionary would define exhortation. To exhort someone is to offer direct admonishment, to incite by argument or advice, to urge strongly, to give warnings or advice, in another dictionary, says that exhort is to strongly encourage, which I find actually quite helpful, as I'll explain in a moment. For example, when we think of exhort, how many of you think like this? We typically think of, uh, we spot sinful inclinations or, uh, I'm sorry, sinful patterns in our brother or sister's lives, and we step in with kind of a, a sharp word. We might say, Stop being lazy or love your neighbor or share the gospel or repent of your sin or stop looking at pornography or quit complaining and gossiping or quit wasting your life with video games, whatever it might be. That's that's an exhortation. That's how we think of exhortation. Now, the goal of encouraging and cheering up a brother and sister is a worthy goal. I wish more of us were like Barnabas who saw to it that other people were encouraged, that brought kind of that ray of sunshine into a dark life. But we also need to exhort one another. We see that clearly throughout the New Testament. The question is, is how is the author of Hebrews using that word here in this context? How is he using the word parakaleo in this context? I believe, given the seriousness of the warning, that he is 
emphasizing the exhortation aspect of this word. That's why I titled the message, exhort one another and not encourage one another. That would be another message and a message that we should hear. But that's not this message. However, we need to be careful that we don't draw a sharp distinction between these words. The definition that I just gave for exhortation, which was to encourage strongly, actually shows, I think, that there's strong overlap. I'm sorry, that there's significant overlap between these two words, which is what justified the translation committees of the New American Standard and the English Standard Version for using either one of these words. Both words are legitimate. To exhort is to strongly encourage. So I would say that this text is calling us to strongly encourage our brothers and sisters so that they will continue in the faith and not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what it means to exhort. It means to encourage strongly. And we need to utilize both encouragement and exhortation in our ministries to our brothers and sisters. At times we need to remind others of the glory and the worth of redemption and the beauty of the cross and the promises of eternal life. But there is times when we need to offer serious and firm admonishment. And that is what this text is emphasizing here. We need to learn how to exhort one another to dislodge sin out of each other's hearts with a sharp and a strong word at times. Simple illustration, you think of it this way. You're sitting with a friend in a car and you are driving 75 miles towards what you know to be a ravine, a cliff. You're going to go shooting off a cliff in about two miles. Starting at the beginning, you might start with some warm encouragement. You don't need to drive off the cliff. Life is good. Think about the good things of life. Let's turn it around. Let's go get coffee. Let's talk about this. And you start to offer warm encouragement. But about a half mile away from the cliff, you are firmly admonishing this person not to drive off the cliff. Of course, we need both in the Christian life. The emphasis here is that there needs to be regular exhortation, regular firm admonishment in the Christian life in order to dislodge the cancer of sin from our hearts. What I fear, though, is what this text tends to do if you are considering exhortation and encouragement and thinking about these two words is it kind of highlights a dichotomy we've allowed to form in the Christian life and kind of unfortunate dichotomy. Perhaps as I was describing encouragement and exhortation and kind of setting them apart like that, you were thinking, yeah, encourage has to do with a, a, a Christian's happiness and exhortation has to do with their holiness. I get that. Encouragement, happiness. Exhortation, holiness. The problem with that kind of thinking is that it draws a distinction or a dichotomy between two concepts that were never meant to be separated in the Christian life and they're not meant to be separate separated in this passage. In other words, the greatest thing you can do for your brothers and sisters' ultimate happiness is to be concerned for their holiness. What is best, what is most happy, what brings the most joy is when we are brought off sin and brought into holiness of life. 
We don't want that distinction or that dichotomy to form in our thinking. The very goal of this passage is to help our brothers and sisters to avoid being deceived by the fleeting, paltry, unsatisfying, eternity-wrecking, family-wrecking promises of sin and to get them to press on to infinitely better enjoyment of Christ. This whole, the whole point of this passage is about exhorting our brothers and sisters to pursue greater happiness than what sin can provide. To be concerned about a person's holiness is to be concerned about a person's ultimate happiness. Let's no longer draw a wedge between these two things. As we are warning and exhorting our brothers and sisters, we are doing them because we want them to be eternally happy. And you will not be if you fall away from the living God. That brings us next to the goal. What is the goal of this exhortation ministry? It's verse 13b. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's the goal. That none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we've heard the warning. We've received the instruction. Notice what we're seeking to avoid. The hardening of the heart. Sin has a hardening uh, effect on the heart. Sin numbs us to the spirit of God. It hardens us to spiritual things. It takes away our enjoyment of godly good enjoyment it dampens our desire for the word of god sin makes us insensitive to the pain and the suffering of others sin douses our love for others in fact jesus makes a a direct connection between sin and our love for others in matthew chapter 24 verse 12 when he says and because lawlessness will be increased the love of many will grow cold when sin abounds in your life your heart for God and your heart for others begins to harden. What is causing this hardening? Well, the author tells us. He tells us it's it's sin. What I find interesting is he could have as easily made his point by simply saying this: that none of you be hardened by the uh, that none of you be hardened by sin. So, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by sin. And that would have made sense. And we would receive that. That would have been a good instruction. It's not what he says. He adds something, doesn't he? To emphasize the nature of sin. Because in order to avoid being hardened by sin, you have to know your enemy. What does an opposing military do when they want to get past enemy lines? They might force themselves through with military might. What's another way they might do it? By disguising themselves as what? The good guy disguising themselves as one of the members of that opposing army. And that's what sin is going to do. It is going to disguise itself. It is going to deceive you. It is going to deceive me in letting and and deceive us into letting it in the door. It's not going to come to you and say, hey, I'm here to wreck and mess up your life and your eternity. Let me in. No one opens the door knowingly to home invaders, do we? If we knew they're home invaders, we wouldn't let them in. And they typically, they try not to show off that they're about ready to invade your home before they do, or else you wouldn't let them in. What does sin do? It deceives us to get its foot in the door. 
How does it, how is sin deceitful? How does it deceive us? Sin tells you that a little of it won't hurt you. Sin tells you that you can get away with it and not get caught. Sin says that you are messing out, missing out on true pleasure if you avoid sin. Sin promises you high quality lasting pleasure, but it never, sin never delivers on that promise. It cannot. It can only deceive you. But oh, it will tell you that it will give you great pleasure, lasting pleasure, and you'll bite into it and boom, everything's gone. What a lie. Sin can appear harmless and advance on you slowly and imperceptibly. A little compromise here. A little lack of integrity there. A little lie here. A little half-truth there. A little pornography here. A little swimsuit issue there. Pretty soon you're caught in deception and sexual immorality you didn't even think was possible. Why? Because sin is deceptive by its nature. It wants to convince you that it's good. It wants its foot in the door. It can, sin can cause you to justify your sinful pleasures and say that you deserve them. My job is hard. My life is hard. Surely God won't mind a little sinful indulgence. That is a lie. That is the deceitful nature of sin. The most deadly thing I think, though, that sin can do is it can disguise itself as something good, something wholesome. Let me give you some examples. Sin will fool you into thinking that gazing lustfully at a woman is merely appreciating feminine beauty. It will trick you into thinking that your workaholism is merely a strong work ethic. Sin will, tr- then it will flip on you and then it'll, it'll trick you into thinking that your laziness is not laziness. It's just that you're too spiritual to get too wrapped in the, wrapped up in the idolatry of work. Sin will trick you into thinking that hoarding your money is simply acting wisely and thinking about the future. It will fool you into thinking that your love of money is just, quote, the enjoyment of God's goods gifts in this life. Jesus said explicitly that money is particularly deceptive. You may start off well, but you soon become more and more dedicated to earning money, saving money, spending money, loving money. Money blinds us to spiritual realities and ties our affections to this earth it doesn't matter how well we started out we've been watching these olympic games and some of the competitors start out really really well getting ahead of the rest of the group and then they wreck and then they never finish and poof went their great beginnings their great beginnings mean nothing Sin hardened, not only hardens our hearts and our minds and makes us numb to Christ, it is deceptive. And here is what is so important for our text today. We are incredibly liable. We are incredibly vulnerable to sin. We are vulnerable to its deceptive nature. The moment you think you're not vulnerable to sin's deception, guess what? You've been deceived. If you're sitting here today thinking, Derek, this message is for someone else. You are in a very precarious situation. You're in the throes of deception. Let me be clear. This message is not for someone else. This message is for you. This message is for me. We need each other. That's why this text is given to us from a loving God who has given you a secure salvation is going to do whatever it takes to get you to heaven. And one of the things he will do is put people into your life to give you the uncomfortable truths that you need to hear so that you will not fall away from the living God. We need each other. If you are a drifter Christian going from one church to the other or just kind of hanging out here, then you are not merely endangering your fruitfulness. 
Let me speak from the authority of God's word. You are endangering your perseverance. You are endangering your place in heaven. No, no digging into gospel relationships. No digging into real accountability with one another. Not willing to hear the exhortations from other brothers in Christ and other sisters in Christ. Not putting you in yourself in the place to hear those exhortations. If you are a drifter Christian, just kind of hanging out. You're not endangering fruitfulness. You're endangering your hope of heaven. We need each other. I remember this so clearly. I've got a list, a growing list, sadly, of people that I know. I keep writing down their names. I just, I'm writing down their names that I know from college that have bailed on the faith. I just was texting with another brother. I said, can you remember the last name of so-and-so? Remember, he was our friend in college, and now he's completely turned against Christ and wants nothing to do with him. So I've got a list that is, continues to grow. And, and I look back, and what I see that's characteristic among these guys, and girls too, is there is this growing refusal to receive exhortation. And I remember this so clearly. There's a, these three guys who are starting to really kind of drift, and we were at, I can't remember the event. It might have been a sporting event. And we're there in the hotel room, and one of the older, wiser uh, guys at the college is with us. I think he's on staff now at this point. And the other three are there, and then I'm there kind of in the middle. And, um, and the older brother is exhorting these three, and they're just mocking him. They just don't want to hear it. They say he's legalistic. They're saying he's, they're, he's putting too much pressure on them or whatever. No one of those three are presently walking with the Lord today. And you could see it. They were removing themselves from accountability, removing themselves from possible exhortation, and they were trying to get as far away from that as they could. And they, they are presently not walking with the Lord. I am afraid that we have found in them an evil, unbelieving heart that has caused them to fall away from the living God, despite their profession of faith and despite their great beginnings. So what's the reason, though? We have, to, we have to tie this all together. We've seen the... We've seen the warning. We've seen the instruction. We've seen the goal. Now, here's the reason. The goal is to make sure that none of us are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here is the reason. Verse 14, I want you to notice this little word for. For grounds... What we just saw in 12 and 13 to this, uh, by this verse here. Verse 14 is the grounding verse of verses 12 and 13. This is the reason why we conduct this kind of ministry. This is the reason why we take this kind of ministry seriously. This is why we take a personal ministry to one another so seriously. Verse 14. We need to be very careful even about the tenses of the verbs in this verse here. It says this. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is the anchor that holds the last two verses we just saw together. Why do we conduct this kind of personal ministry? Because it is our perseverance in the faith that proves that our original profession was legitimate. Your brother and sister's perseverance is what proves that they are in the faith. Not their original profession, 
Not all the Bible studies they've taught, not all the missions, trips that they've gone on and now bailed upon. No, their perseverance has, is what proves that they have shared in Christ. Notice the tense of the verbs. It says, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It doesn't say that we must wait until we get to heaven. We must persevere in order to see whether or not we shared in Christ. That's not what the text is saying. The text is saying that you have already come to share in Christ if indeed you hold your confidence firm till the end. What it's showing is that your perseverance has, is, is demonstrating that you have already come to Christ. You can't have assurance that you have embraced Christ if you are not presently per, uh, persevering in the faith. You can't have confidence that your professing brother or sister has shared in Christ if they are not presently persevering in the faith. That is what he is saying in this text. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm till the end. What he's not doing here is seeking to upset the assurance of genuine believers. In fact, it's the exact opposite. He's wanting us to labor among each other in such a way that each of us has what? Full assurance of salvation. He's not knocking assurance at all. To read the text this way, as some have done, is to misunderstand, misread, and not deal with the details of the text. He is actually writing in such a way that encourages and promotes the assurance of your salvation. In fact, what is what is key and crucial to your perseverance is that you hold your original confidence, hold your original assurance firm till the end. What was that original confidence? It was the belief that Christ is real, that he is true, that he is precious, that the gospel truly does save, that the gospel is true, that Jesus is truly the light of the world, the bread from which we eat, the drink from which we are satisfied. That confidence when you came to Christ and he knew that he gave you a secure salvation, that he holds you in his hand. That is what he is the author of Hebrews is calling us to, to hold that assurance firm till the end. Because that is what gives us the assurance that, in fact, we have come to share in Christ. And that's what gives us the confidence as we work among our brothers and sisters that they have come to share in Christ, namely their perseverance. Do not think that just because your friend previously professed faith even became a member of the church, appeared to bear fruit that everything is okay right now and you can just let them go on their own. We are never to let each other go on our own. Oh, he's doing fine. He doesn't need our exhortation or encouragement or admonishment or warning. Just because someone has professed faith, just because someone has become a member of our church, does not mean that we just let them go. Our ministry to them is regular exhortation so that they might not be fooled and deceived by sin, by the very deceptive nature of sin. That's our calling as a body to truly care for and love one another. This takes courage. It takes time. It is hard you risk awkwardness. But guess what? 
Perseverance, according to this text, is a group effort. God has composed the body in such a way that he's put us in each other's life. And I need this just as much as you need it. That he's put us in each other's life so that he keeps our faith going by the regular exhortation I hear from you. Do not stop exhorting me. Do not stop encouraging me. You are God's means of keeping me in the faith. I am God's means of keeping you in the faith. You are God's means of keeping your husband in the faith. You are God's means of keeping your brother or sister or your friend or whoever it is in the faith. A sovereign God uses means and one of the means to keep his people believing, to keep them secure in their salvation is by placing people in their life to regularly exhort them and renew their repentance and their faith in Christ. So we've heard a serious word today, haven't we? I can tell that just looking out that this is weighing heavy upon you. And I hope it does. Not so that you go home morose and sad, but that you'll go home with a seriousness that considers the joy of Christ, the pleasure of Christ, the happiness of Christ far infinitely better than the pleasures of sin. I hope that we go home today with a kind of seriousness that leads to serious happiness. Because it's only that kind of seriousness that will bring us into the life of someone and have the courage to speak what might be a hard word to them so that they will receive that hard word be spurred on to repentance and faith and continue in their faith in Jesus Christ. So we've had heard a hard word, but this is a gloriously happy and good word. It is meant to lead to the fruit of joy, to the fruit of spiritual happiness, to the fruit of righteousness, to the fruit of holiness. You may not have realized it until today, But one of the primary means that God uses to get his children safely to heaven is faithful gospel relationships in the local church. If you're drifting from one church to the next and you are failing to dig in to relationships where you can hear this kind of exhortation, I must tell you, you're in a precarious situation. You're in a precarious situation. You're becoming adept and good at hiding sin. And hiding sinful inclinations from others. Because you just bounce. You just bounce. You never dig in. This is not a fruitfulness thing. This is a heaven thing. If you are resisting these relationships or find yourself presently without them, I want you to keep in mind the warning of this passage. My question for you is, if you're a drifter Christian, is if one of the means is for you to get to heaven is being placed in a place where you can regularly hear exhortation from brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're removing yourself out of that, then what does that say about your perseverance? What does it say about your perseverance? I want us to keep clearly at the center of our minds and hearts the vital importance of our ministry to our brothers and sisters in Christ. God has designed that our relationships to one another be one of the primary means that he keeps us believing. If you see spiritual indifference a growing love for the world, pride, uh, a seeking after personal glory, a pursuit of the love of money, 
Ask God for grace and then exhort your brother and sister in Christ. That is a vital ministry. We must do it today, as long as it is called today, so that none of us here at GBF, none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and fall away from the living God. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've given us a tough word today, a tough word that is so, so good for us. God, I pray that you'd make us a people who exhort one another courageously, wisely, compassionately, mercifully, because we see that eternity is in the balance. This is not something to mess around with. God, I pray that you would enable us with courage to speak a word to each other, to speak a hard word. When we see a situation that appears to be going south, that we would step in, that we would have that word of exhortation, that we'd speak that firm admonishment, say it's not worth it, brother, it's not worth it, sister, to pursue that, that kind of life, that sin. It won't pay off. It will wreck you, it will wreck your life, it will wreck your family, it will wreck your eternity. God, would you make us these kinds of people? Will we have such a heart for each member of GBF that we cannot allow them to go on their own, but we are deeply concerned with their spiritual lives and we lovingly exhort one another, would you please put people in our lives individually at this church? Would you put people in my life continually to exhort me to warn me, to keep me off the, the empty pleasures of sin. Father, I pray that you do this work among us, not that we would be morose, not that we would be downcast, but that we would have joy inexpressible and full of glory. And I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.